Twelve of you walked on the earth together. The Savior was a brother to you all. The teacher that you heard was the living word. The wonders and the miracles you saw. There were times of awesome inspiration. There were times you did not understand. And when he had to go and you felt alone, it must have been so hard to see his plan. I think about the way you carried on. In the face of persecution, you stood strong. So I will follow Christ. I will run the race. Fighting the good fight. Standing on my faith. I will wear the name of Jesus. I will give him all my life. As for me, no matter what the sacrifice, I will follow Christ. Now I don't have to look across the ages. His voice is speaking in my heart today. His word is like a flame Consuming all my shame His life a shining star to show the way So I will follow Christ I will run the race Fighting the good fight Standing on my faith I will wear the name I will give him all my life. As for me, no matter what the sacrifice, yes, I will follow. I behold your life and see the man you want me to become. Living like someone whose heart belongs to the kingdom that was sealed on Calvary, I will show the world what I believe. I will run the race, fighting on, standing on my faith. I will wear the name of Jesus, I will give him all my for me no matter what the sacrifice I will follow Christ I will wear the name of Jesus I will give him all my life as for me no matter what the sacrifice
Amen. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, that is our earnest desire, to follow Christ. With all our hearts, with, with all our thoughts, with all of our efforts, with all of our being, we want to be found doing the right thing, Lord. We want to run the race and finish strong. We want to fight the good fight to the, to the very end. We pray that you'll give us your strength to carry out this, this effort, Father. And we pray that you will visit with us now, Lord, and inspire and, and challenge us this morning as we look to your word. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's, it's a grueling 543.7-mile endurance run from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. It's the world's longest and toughest ultramarathon. In 1983, 150 world-class runners converged on Sydney for the event. 150 of the, of the greatest, most well-conditioned athletes in the world. On the day of the race, a toothless 61-year-old potato farmer and sheep herder named Cliff Young approached the registration table wearing overalls and galoshes over his work boots. Well, at first, people thought he was, he was there to, to watch the race. But to their surprise, Cliff Young declared his intention to run. And he requested a number. Well, his backstory, Cliff Young had grown up on a, on a farm without the benefit of, of the luxuries like horses and four-wheel drives. And when the storms rolled in, Cliff headed out to round up 2,000 sheep over a 2,000-acre farm. And sometimes he had to run them for two or three days straight to complete the roundup. Well, the incredulous staff gave Cliff number 64. And, and as he mingled with the other runners at the starting line, spectators couldn't believe their eyes. He stood out. He was so out of place. This must be a joke, they thought. Well, when the gun went off, bystanders snickered at at Cliff, left behind in his galoshes and overalls, as the other runners with their sculpted bodies and sleek running gear briskly began the race. And those snickers gave way to, to laughter when Cliff began to run, not like the other runners, but with what could only be described as a leisurely odd shuffle. All of Australia was riveted to the live telecast as they, they watched the scene unfold. Someone should stop that crazy old man before he kills himself, they reported to the officials. Well, five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later, Cliff Young came shuffling across the finish line in Melbourne, winning the ultramarathon. He didn't win by a few seconds or, or even a few minutes. The nearest runner was nine hours and 56 minutes behind him. True story. Australians were stunned at this remarkable yet seemingly impossible victory. How did it happen? Well, everyone knew that to run an ultramarathon, runners would run for 18 hours and then stop and sleep for six hours. And the routine was repeated for the five grueling days. But no one told Cliff Young that's how you do it. He just shuffled along day and night, night and day, without stopping to sleep. 
Cliff broke the previous race record by nine hours and became an overnight national hero. Interestingly, later professional runners began to study and experiment the odd shuffle that he used in his running. Many long-distance runners have since taken it up and adopted it, and it's come to be known as the Young Shuffle <laughs> due to its aerodynamic and energy efficiency. It's not pretty. You, you should look it up. YouTube this. It's not flashy, but slow and steady endurance wins the race. Well, victory in the Christian life is like that, isn't it? It comes through endurance. Our spiritual journey isn't a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon. In the, in the short-distance race, speed is important. In the long-distance race, endurance is what leads to success. And the Apostle Paul knew this better than anyone. Turn with me to our text this morning, or look up at the screens, to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to focus on just the first three verses of the chapter. Paul spent the previous chapter as a tribute to the great men and women of faith mentioned throughout Scripture. He provided us inspirational examples of real-life faith, men and women who lived sold out to God, trusting Him implicitly and, and walking with Him daily. And now, in chapter 12, he turns that motivation into personal instructions for each one of us. So let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So today we're going we're gonna to look at three key instructions, three lessons that Paul conveys to the Hebrews, which are as, as applicable to us today as they were in those early church days. He teaches us to carefully examine what we run, how we run, and why we run. So let's start with our first point, what we run. If we take a look again at the last half of verse 1, it says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. There's a race. There's a race marked out for every believer. It's not an easy race. It's not a quick race. It's, it's fraught with obstacles, perils, dangers, heartaches. It's not even a race where we can see every part of the track. There's unknowns at every turn. But it's the race that God has marked out for each one of us. He hand-designed it. Each race is unique to each runner, to each believer. My race is not your race. Your race is not your neighbor's race. We didn't select the race marked out for us, but we must make the choice to run it and run it to its completion. You know, so often we, we look around us and, and, and we look at our neighbor and we want to run their race. Wow, we wish we could be on their track. Their race looks so inviting, so much easier than ours. Nicely paved, straight track, 
no hurdles in sight, the sun is shining, and here we are stuck in the weeds, in the mud, out in the cold, with hurdles, pitfalls, and obstacles galore. Oh, Lord, if only... No. Friend, God has ordained your race for you. He knows what's best for you. Never judge a book by its cover. You know, your neighbor's race may be no easier for him or her than yours is for you. You haven't walked in their shoes. You don't see into their heart. Run the race marked out for you. God has ordained it. God has designed it. God has selected it and customized it just for you. He knows that you can complete it with his help and through his strength. And he knows that it's not too much for you. You know, we've all heard the quote, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. And it's so true. He will keep and protect you with his grace as long as you're in his will. That's right. The race marked out for you is his plan for your life, and it's his will for your life. You know, the concept of pursuing the will of God is, is, a, is a forgotten tenet of our Christian faith these days. We've forgotten about God's will for us. We, we don't think about his will for us. Our society has so conditioned us to focus on what we want, our dreams, our pursuits, our goals, and when we've gone down our path so far and found only destruction and, and chaos, then we call upon God to help fix it. Friend, we should have never been there in the first place. And how we try to justify our decisions in our own path, in our own way. An old sailor repeatedly got lost out at sea, and so his friends gave him a gift. They gave him a compass, and they urged him to use it because they were the ones who had to keep rescuing him. Well, the next time he went out on his boat, he followed their advice, took the compass with him. But as usual, he became hopelessly confused and was unable to find land. Finally, he was rescued once again by his friends. Well, disgusted and impatient with him at this point, they asked, why didn't you use the compass we gave you? You could have saved us a lot of trouble again. The old sailor responded, I didn't dare to. I wanted to go north, but as hard as I tried to make the needle aim in that direction, it just kept pointing southeast. <laughs> that old sailor was so certain he knew which way was north that he stubbornly tried to force his own personal persuasion on his compass. And, and unable to do so, he, he tossed it aside as worthless and never benefited from the guidance it offered. It's, it's humorous, but it hits close to home, doesn't it? How often we try to shoehorn our plans into God's will. We're trying to make the compass point in the direction we want it to. Friend, it'll never work. And then where does it lead you? And we keep trying and we keep forcing. We keep trying to make that broken path work in our lives and, and, and get us to where we want to go. We change jobs. We, we try and force careers. We try and force relationships. We try and make our dreams happen, regardless of whether they're God's will or not. And, and as things fall apart in our lives, well, we apply scotch tape to our crumbling buildings. Friends, stop going down the wrong path. 
Stop going down the wrong road. You can't fix it. Go back to that fork in the road and make the right decision. And go God's way. Make the right choice. May we have enough humility to throw up our arms and say, you know what? I blew it, Lord. I made the wrong choice. I sinned. Forgive me. I want to go back and do it right. You know, even better, may we never put ourselves in that position in the first place. May we never think so highly of ourselves and our decision-making that we march out in foolishness and in our own confidence and, and, and forge our own way. May we look to God in faithful dependence for His guidance and His will in our lives. John Oxenham wrote this great little phrase, and, and we should remember it. He says, Not for one single day can I discern my way, but this I surely know, he who gives the day will show the way, and so I securely go. That's what I want, his will every day, all the way. That's the race marked out for me. That's exactly what we should run, the race he designed, the race he selected and, and ordained for each one of us. Are you in God's will today? Are you running the race he wants you to run? Or are you spinning your wheels trying to make something happen that was never meant for you? You need to run the right race. You need to run the right race. Your race. So our first point is what we should run. Our second point is how we should run. And we're given some very specific steps to successfully run our race and how we should run. The first is to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We read it. The New York City Marathon, it's a large race across the five boroughs on the first weekend of November. And what that means is there's a line of 50,000 runners on the Verrazano Narrows Bridge waiting to start the race almost two hours before it begins. And it's November, so it's freezing cold. Everyone is bundled up against the cold. But when the race starts, they can't run with all that clothing and all the coats and jackets and, and hats. So they begin discarding their clothes as they go. And eventually, the 100,000-plus pieces of clothing are picked up and given to the homeless. Every year this happens. And these runners are literally throwing off everything that hinders. Why? Well, the extra weight slows you down. It drags you down. It keeps you from moving forward and running your best. Imagine if you're running a race and, and you're, you're going to run a marathon and you show up with a, with a heavy pack of tools. Hey, I'm running a race, so I brought my tools. What are you doing? Well, I thought they'd help. No. We'd say it's foolishness. But we do the same thing in our, in our Christian walk. We carry burdens of self-will. We carry burdens of, of, of doubt and sin along with us that we're, we're unwilling to shed. And instead of running with lightness and a spring in our step, we're weighed down by those things we're carrying. And we're weighed down more and more, and, and, and eventually we fall to the ground in defeat from the weight of that burden. Is there something in your life hindering you from running the race for Christ? Guess what? It's, it's sin. 
Let's not spin it as something else. Let's not sugarcoat it. Oh, it's emotional baggage that I'm carrying. It's just a bad habit I have. You know, it's a, it's a character flaw of mine. I've, I've grown to accept it. Oh, those are just doubts I have about what God can do in my life. Oh, you know, that's just my stubbornness. That's how I am. Friend, if there's something, anything, keeping you from running the race the way God wants you to and walking in the way he has commanded you to, it's nothing short of sin. And Paul tells us what to do with it. He says, don't coddle it, don't, don't spin it, don't revisit it. Throw it off and move on. We'll never make progress until we give up that burden. And if we don't, it will destroy us. Well, you know, it's not sin that's holding me back. It's, it's just that I'm so busy with other things. I'm busy with life. Friend, the, the busyness of life is the biggest hindrance in the Christian race. And, and it's cleverly planned and designed and architected and disguised by the devil to keep us preoccupied with the stuff of life so that we don't even have time to think about the spiritual. Henry Nguyen writes, if I were to let my life be taken over by what is urgent, I might very well never get around to what is essential. You know, there's always going to be urgencies in life. There will always be a lineup of, of things and people that, that want our time and our attention and our focus. That's life. But busyness or any pursuit, even if it's a good pursuit, but it can become a, a sinful hindrance if it keeps us from our pursuit of God. When the busyness of life keeps us from the very point of life, something has to change. It becomes a hindrance and it has to go. We need to simplify. We need to prioritize. What is it in your life that has so stolen your time from God? What pursuit, what hobby, what busyness has taken the priority in your life? It's a sobering question to ask. Richard Baxter laments about this thought. He says, it's a, it's a lamentable thing to see how most people spend their time and their energy for trifles, which God, while God is cast aside. He who is all seems to them as nothing, and that which is nothing seems to them as, as good as all. It is lamentable indeed knowing that God has set mankind in such a race where heaven or hell is their certain end, and they should sit down and loiter or run after the childish toys of the world, forgetting the prize they should run for. He says, were it possible for one of us to see this busyness as the all-seeing God does and see what most men and women in the world are interested in and what they are doing every day, it would be the saddest sight imaginable. Oh, how we should marvel at their madness and lament their self-delusion if God had never told them what they were sent into the world to do or, or what was before them waiting in the next world, then there would be some excuse. But it is his sealed word and they profess to believe it. I don't want to be found chasing trifles. I, I don't want to be found spending my time on things that will not last. I don't want anything to hinder my walk with God. 
I don't want anything to hold me back from running the race God wants me to run. Unhindered. That's how we should run. With unhindered faith. In other words, nothing is holding back our faith. Not fear, not sin, not doubt, not negative thoughts, not trifles, not busyness. Well, what if the, the something in your life hindering you is a someone? Well, if that someone is destroying your walk with God, friend, walk away. Walk away from them. If it's a spouse or someone you can't walk away from, then you have to define your stand. There is a line you have to refuse to cross. You know, you can compromise on a lot of things in this life, but there's no compromise when it comes to Christ. There shouldn't be. Define your principles and stand firm in that faith. This isn't a, a sometimes race. You know, we run a little while and then we give up. Then we pick it back up, we run a little bit and we quit. When things get hard, when things get tough, no, we keep going. Paul says, run unhindered and run with perseverance. It's easy to start a race. A lot of people start a marathon. But when the miles add up and the cramping starts and the aching hits, it's so easy to quit. Paul calls on us to run with perseverance. Perseverance is defined as this. Steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. We may not see the finish line in view. We may not see answers to our prayers for years. We may not see the fruits of our labor in this lifetime. But we keep going. We don't quit. We don't give up. We may get tired, but we endure. We may get discouraged, but we don't give in to defeat. We may fall, but we get up. We try again. Are you there today? Were you running a good race and you fell off the track and, and you're looking around and wondering, what do I do now? How do I even get back? You do. You get up. You try again. You go back to where you fell off. You get back on the course and you try again. It's never the wrong time to try again. It's never too late. Your race isn't over. You're still breathing. Your race isn't over. It's never too late to get up and dust ourselves off and get back in the race. Take inspiration from Harland. Poor Harland. It, it certainly seemed like everything was against him in life. At age five, his father died. At age 16, he was kicked out of school. At age 17, he had already lost four jobs. At age 18, he got married. He, he joined the army and he washed out there. At age 20, his wife left him and took their baby. He became a cook in a small cafe and, and convinced his wife to return home. He struggled and struggled with financial difficulties his entire career. And finally, at age 65, he retired. He didn't want him working anymore. Well, he felt like a failure, and he decided to commit suicide. He sat writing his, his will, but instead he wrote what he, he would have accomplished, maybe had life turned out different. He began thinking that, you know, the only thing he did reasonably well was cook. So he, he, he decided not to commit suicide. He figured he'd try again. 
He borrowed $87. He, he fried up some chicken using his recipe, and he went from place to place trying to sell his food. Over 1,000 companies and restaurants rejected him, and he kept trying. They told him, your chicken's no good, sorry. Finally, one owner, after over 1,000 attempts, had a positive comment. He said, you know, your chicken's not bad, sir. What's your name? Harland. Harland Sanders. Most folks just call me Colonel Sanders. The rest was history. At age 88, Colonel Sanders, founder of the Kentucky Fried Chicken Empire, was a billionaire. Things aren't going to be easy. Life isn't easy. There's going to be defeats. There's going to be rejections. There will be crushing blows at every turn. But we endure. We must endure. We must persevere in our race for Christ. Galatians 6, 9 reminds us, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. How do we do it? It gets so hard. How do we do it? How do we endure to the end? How do we persevere through the rejection? How do we keep going through the pain? How do we persevere till the harvest? Well, Paul tells us exactly how in verse 2 of our text. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's the key. The key to running the race successfully, how we run, is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Where an athlete looks is key to their success. Good athletes keep their eyes fixed on the finish line. Jesus is not only our reason to persevere, he's our motivation. He's our inspiration. He's our example. He never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. The only way to make straight paths for your feet is to be looking ahead at the goal rather than looking down at our feet. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. If we're focused on the crowd or the other runners or the obstacles in our way or the, or the pain in our bodies, we're going to fail. We're going to fall apart. But if we focus on him, we will find renewed strength. He's our finish line and he's our example. As a follower of Christ, you will receive a lot of opposition, a lot of criticism, negative remarks, but it's absolutely nothing compared to what Jesus endured for you. You know, we, we should be ashamed when we complain about our light and temporary suffering. He endured the weight of your sin and my sin and the sin of the entire world. He endured the most painful death and separation from the Father. All for you and for me. Can we not endure our difficulties for him? Can we not endure criticism for him? Can we not endure our pain for him? Our discomfort? Can we not endure our trial for him? How can we persevere? We look to Christ. We keep our eyes on him. You know, there's another point to be made here. In the first verse we, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
I always read this and, and, and translated witnesses as spectators or beholders. People are watching our lives. We're an example to others, and, and it's so true, but we have a responsibility in how we live our, rice, uh, our lives and run our race in front of watching eyes. But the original Greek translation here for witnesses is martyrs, those who have borne testimony with their blood our heroes, those who have gone before us. The chapter preceding 12 is the Hall of Faith, chronicling the faithful lives of our spiritual heroes. They're not only examples for us to follow, they're cheering us on. They're watching. We can, we can take an example from them. Ever felt inadequate for the task God is asking you to fulfill? And Moses will tell you that God will raise you up and fill your inadequacies. Ever felt betrayed, passed over, forgotten? Joseph will remind you to hang in there because in the end, in God's perfect timing, everything's going to be okay. Ever feel like a helpless lamb in the midst of lions? Daniel will tell you he's been there and God is faithful. He will carry you. Ever faced a giant of a problem you couldn't fix? David will tell you to keep your eyes on God and watch that giant fall. Ever failed to take a stand and messed up so miserably that you couldn't even look the Lord in the eyes? Peter will tell you that there's always forgiveness and a second chance. They're cheering you on. Those stalwarts of faith, they had the same difficulties and the same problems you have. They went through the same trials. Follow their lead. And, and you know, the beautiful thing is that we not only have examples in Scripture to look to in living enduring lives of faith, we still have heroes among us. Brothers and sisters in Christ who have paved the way. Those we can look to for encouragement to keep going, to persevere, have you ever been down and, and ready to give up and, and found encouragement from the words of a dear brother or sister in Christ? Yeah, we all have. That's what we're called to do for one another. That's what we should expect from one another. A true friend in Christ, a true brother in Christ won't tell you what's easy, won't tell you what you want to hear, but will encourage and challenge you with what you need to hear. Keep going. I know it's difficult. I know it's tough. But look to the Lord. Keep going. I'll be praying for you. I'm here for you. I'm rooting for you. Keep going. Endure. Perseverance. We don't quit. We don't give up. We endure by keeping our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. That's how we should run. What do we run? We run the race that God has ordained for our lives. How do we run? We run unhindered by sin or distractions with perseverance focused on Christ. And finally, our third and last point, why we run. Well, if our example is Jesus, we take our cue from him. Verse 2 said, for the joy set before him endured the cross. We run for the joy that's set before us, the goal, the prize. No one runs a race that never ends. Every runner runs because there's a finish line and there's something waiting at the finish line. 
a medal, a trophy, a prize. We run because there's a prize waiting for each of us on the other side. There's a joy set before us. Jesus ran his race for the joy set before him. What was his joy? An eternity in heaven with his father and with those he died to redeem. That's our joy too. Heaven, an eternity of peace and praise with the saints and in the presence of God. We will be with the one who died for us. We will be in the presence of the object of our praise. No more tears, no more pain, no more struggle. There's no greater motivation for the believer. Heaven is the culmination, the eternal fulfillment of all we could wish or ask for. My youngest son, Parker, will sometimes get a little sad, wondering if his favorites in life, his favorite toys, his favorite blanket, his favorite games, will be in heaven. And he gets apprehensive at the thought of an eternity without them. These are big existential thoughts for a five-year-old. And I always tell him the same thing. Honey, if, if Legos are what your heart desires in heaven, then there will be an endless supply of Legos prepared for you. What he doesn't understand yet is that our wants and desires will be transformed too. James Packer explains it well. He says, as I get older, I find that I appreciate God and people and good and lovely and noble things more and more intensely. So it is pure delight to think that this enjoyment will continue and increase in some form. What form, God knows, and, and I'm content to wait and see. In fact, Christians inherit the destiny which fairy tales envisioned in fancy. We, yes, you and I, the saved, silly sinners, live and live happily. And by God's endless mercy, we'll live happily ever after. We cannot visualize heaven's life, and the wise men will not try to do so. Instead, he will dwell on the doctrine of heaven, where the redeemed will find all of their heart's desire. Joy with their Lord, joy with his people, and joy in the ending of all frustration and distress and in the supply of all wants. What was said to the child, if you want sweets and hamsters in heaven, they'll be there, was not an evasion, but a witness to the truth that in heaven no felt needs or longings go unsatisfied. What our wants will actually be, however, we hardly know, except the first and foremost, we shall want to be always with the Lord. That's our prize. That's our goal, to be always with the Lord in his very presence. Oh, when the days get long, when the trials get difficult, when the pain seems unbearable, turn your thoughts toward home. That's the joy set before us. Endure because at the finish line, there's a prize unlike any we can imagine. That's our goal. That's why we run. What we should run, the race designed and ordained by God for us, how we should run unhindered with perseverance and our eyes fixed on Christ, and why we should run, because the prize of heaven awaits us at the finish line. So how are you doing in your race today? Are you still on the right track? Running unhindered by fear and, and sin and doubts, are your eyes on the prize? on Christ and the marvelous future he has prepared for us? Or have you drifted? Have your eyes shifted? 
Are you looking at the wrong things? Are you focused on your mountains instead of your mountain mover? Are you focused on the trifles and temptations of this world instead of the Savior who's encouraging you on? Have you fallen down beneath the weight of the burdens you're carrying? Have you stopped running altogether? Friend, it's not too late. He helped you get started in this race. He can help you finish it. He can help you get up again. He can take the burden for you and lead you on, running the way you're supposed to. Don't let sin get you down. And worse, don't let sin keep you down. Look to him. Take the nail-scarred hand that's reaching out for you. Let him help you get back on the right course. It's never too late. Do it today. Do it now. And one glorious day, when you see the Savior face to face, you will hear those words and you will bask in them when he says, well done. Well done, my child. I'm going to close with this story. Speaking of races and, and marathons, the final one, the Olympic Games, Mexico, 1968. The marathon is the, is the final event of every Summer Olympic. And the Olympic Stadium in Mexico is packed. There's excitement. As the first athlete, an Ethiopian runner, enters the stadium, the crowd erupts as he crosses the finish line, wins the gold. Way back in the field is another runner, John Stephen Akwari of Little Tanzania. He's been eclipsed by every other runner. After 19 miles, his head is throbbing, his muscles are aching, and he falls to the ground. He, he has a serious leg injury, and officials are urging him to stop. There's no shame. You got injured. But he refuses. With his knee bandaged, Akwari picks himself up and hobbles the remaining seven miles to the finish line. An hour after the winner has already finished, Akwari enters the stadium. All but a few thousand of the crowd have gone home. And he moves around the track at a painstakingly slow pace until finally he collapses over the finish line. It is one of the most heroic efforts in Olympic history. Afterwards, asked by a reporter why he had not dropped out, Akwari said, my country did not send me to start the race. They sent me to finish it. Keep running, friend. Persevere. Run the race. Run the right race. Run the right way. And run for the right reason. And finish strong. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have designed and ordained a race for each one of us. Give us your strength, Lord, to stay on that course that you've chosen for us. Give us your grace to throw off all of the, the hindrances of life, all of the busyness, all of the distractions, and help us to run with perseverance as we keep our eyes focused on Christ the author and perfecter of our faith. And help us, Father, to run to the finish. With heaven as our goal and ultimate prize, give us, give us strength, give us endurance to, to persevere and finish strong 
Thank you for who you are and for all you have done in our lives. Thank you for saving us and setting us on the right course. We don't ever want to quit, Lord. We don't ever want to stop. We pledge to persevere. We pledge to endure. And with your strength, we pledge to finish. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.